Short Reverse Short, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hello, Ed. I'm very well. Uh, well, better than I was last week. Uh, mm-hmm. The horrific cold that I found myself succumbing to is finally on its way out. Good to hear. And I am coming to you live from Past Tense HQ. I am Ooh. in Edinburgh again because I just can't get enough of the fringe and... Fiona, who is the creator of uh, Past Tense, which I produce, is very kindly letting me crash at hers. I've already done that thing where you just make a pile of all of your stuff uh, by the (laughs) sofa, so I've marked my territory. And I'm speaking to you from uh, her sonically approved office, where she researches, writes and records Past Tense. So it's quite lovely, actually. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I've spent a lot of this week catching up on movies from 2018 that uh, I missed, and I'll probably recommend one of them at the end of the episode. But I also watched uh, a couple of episodes of the NBC craft competition show Making It, which is a transparent attempt to copy the British Bake Off model of television <laughs> in that it's a very lovely competition show. But this time it's about crafts and it's hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, who uh, are, of course, lovely people who uh, I have missed seeing be silly and goofy and charming together. And uh, that is a very fun and uh, soothing television programme. I will have to find a way to watch that because that's everything I need right now. Mm, Yeah, it's 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 really it's really very lovely. uh, And as far as like. Shows clearly commissioned to air when NBC don't really have much else on. Uh, it's probably the the top of that genre because it's amazing craftspeople making these kind of really cool personal uh, items and m- mixed in with bits of Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman just trying to come up with craft based puns to amuse each other, which is yeah, it's it's just really nice seeing those two on television together again. I saw a wonderful tweet a few weeks ago where the tweeter and you know what i'm like i'm so sorry i've completely forgotten who it is but (laughs) said uh, netflix should have an option where you finish queer eye and the great british bake-off and then it says hey uh i think i can tell you're kind of going through something right now here are some more (laughs) low-key stakes and delightful programs for you and i think Mm. we could all do with that function (laughs) yeah some sort of empathetic algorithm but i guess if we start going down that route. I think eventually it ends up with Skynet. Like it seems like if they're that, if it's that clever, <laughs> pretty much we're all dead. But at least you know we'll get some good recommendations in like the two weeks between it going online uh, and it murdering us all. <laughs> Which is always that's the you know I mean that's better than what most tech companies are offering us now. I guess. Uh, <laughs> so we'll go into the news for this week, and I think the biggest story, the one that broke over the last couple of days was that Danny Boyle, who had been in negotiations to direct the 25th Bond movie and had been attached as a director, having gone through a seemingly very long negotiation process and telling them that the script that they were working on was garbage and bringing on his collaborator John Hodges to write a new one and everyone apparently being more or less 
happy with the direction the movie was going, left over creative differences with the producers and Daniel Craig, who were all cited in the uh, statement from Eon saying, you know, they appreciated his work, but they kind of like parted ways, which you and I both talked about offline as being very interesting. The fact that it did cite like Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson and Daniel Craig, like it felt a weirdly personal send off for what should be a fairly prosaic thing of saying, oh, well, didn't work out. See ya. Uh, enjoy your massively successful career. It was like a gang. Like, why, mm. why would you know three people? It sounded like it, they were ganging up on him. Who knows what happened? Hopefully, in years to come, someone will do another inevitable Bond retrospective and there will mm. be an interesting long read about this when everyone's had time to lick their wounds. But mm. I couldn't the... really understand why that was necessary. Why state your names and make it so personal? The story that was going round uh, a few days ago, like, I don't know how true this is, because obviously it just happened, so it's it, uh, a lot of the... And it wasn't an official statement, it was just someone kind of close to the production talking about it. Apparently, the disagreement was down to who Danny Boyle wanted to play the villain. He wanted to cast a actor who is in the Powell... Pawlowski film Cold War that's due to come out, the, the guy directed um, Ida, and he wanted to cast him in it, and apparently Daniel Craig, who has more or less veto power over who gets cast in the movies, he has kind of final say on all the villains and all the Bond girls and things like that. He didn't want him in the movie playing the character who apparently is meant to be, you know, kind of like a Russian villain, kind of like this revived Cold War figure. And that was apparently the final straw for Danny Boyle as he felt this guy would have been perfect to play the villain and Daniel Craig said no. And so, yeah, Danny Boyle just went, all right, see ya. But that, that I don't, again, I don't know how official or true that is, but that's the story that was doing the rounds. Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle, the pipes are calling. That's why, that's again why I should never, never really sing. But I wish him well. <laughs> it's not like Danny's going to be fine. I oh, yeah. when when it was first announced that he was attached I thought this is really interesting and exciting because I do think that he's genuinely one of the best action directors working today. Mm. I did not like Train Spotting 2 his most recent offering and yeah. I will actually talk a little bit about that in our theme today but I just he he always manages to do really surprising things. Number 1 Let's not forget that he and Rosario Dawson were a couple for some time. Mm, yeah. Number two, his beautiful NHS tribute to the Olympics. Mm. Sorry, tribute at the Olympics. And then, yeah, he just likes to do mad shit. And I, and I really love him. I think he's often so overlooked. And it just feels to me like the Broccolis and, and Eon and, and Wilson and Craig really shot themselves in the foot because he could have really given this franchise a shot in the arm that it desperately needed and to not rescind a little bit of creative control is it if it is down to something as simple as casting the villain is a real shame because there's been so much going around just now i mean you almost wonder if this was the time to put it out because it was all at the same time as the idris elba is next bond speculation mm. as well 
And I wonder whether it was like, uh, what's the best thing we can do to not appear massively racist? Uh, let's let's announce that we've not got this really progressive and outwardly lefty <laughs> director. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, interesting move, guys. Interesting move. Be interesting to see how they recover from it, how Bond will recover from it, because it's proving itself to be more and more irrelevant as time goes on. I think Sam Mendes did a great job and, and created some really beautiful looking films. But how many times can you keep rebooting this franchise that genuinely seems to come from the same time that people who say something very bigoted hark back to? Mm, yeah, and I think Boyle would probably have enlivened the aesthetics of the movies in a major way because like like you say Mendes and his work with Roger Deakins on Skyfall in particular you know created some of the best looking moments in any of the Bond series and you know you, you have that great fight scene in the skyscraper with pretty much no light except the neon from the nearby buildings which is like a really exhilarating fight sequence that looks unlike anything else in the series and that that stuff was great but it really felt as if the, I don't know, the arch classical feel that they were going for was really undone when, you know, they tried to do all of the everything is connected and, you know, cinematic universe tie-in kind of stuff yeah. that they did in Spectre, which ended up making it a really, kind of really unwashable, but really, really beautiful uh, dreck. But it really felt as if they could use someone who could, provided with a bit of a, like say, a shot in the arm. And because he's such a mercurial talent who can turn his hand to to more or less any genre and do something interesting with it, that he probably could have enlivened it. And the fact that he had brought in John Hodges to write it and he clearly was trying to put his own stamp on the franchise in a major way. And the fact that, you know, the the producers for a while at least were more than willing to do that and you know went so far as to acquiesce and say yeah our you know our regular writers will kick them out the door for you if you agree to sign on Mm. suggests that something about his idea for the for the 25th movie really excited them but clearly uh, it didn't come together but but at the same time whenever you hear that some director who's you know a distinctive auteur with a real strong vision signs on to a major franchise movie there's always that sense of like okay are they going to do something to really enliven this thing that's run out of steam or are they just gonna get ground down by it and you're just gonna end up with like the marvel movies whenever they hire someone who's like a visually distinctive director except in the case of like taika waititi who pretty much managed to force his own sense of humor and his own style onto thor but for the most part like whenever they hire someone the movies don't feel that much different to you know, the other movies because there's such a strong house style. And it feels um, more like television in that way. Mm, they, definitely. And the question that I see lots of people asking on Twitter now is like, well, who who will they get now to direct? Mm. And I don't know if this is, and I know this isn't quite the right word, but you know what I mean, the law for bond to be directed by a british or you know a british director because mm-hmm. a lot of people were suggesting catherine bigelow and i you know she's great but uh, she's got better stuff to do with her time i think 
Yeah. But I would like to throw the hat in the ring for Ama Asante. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she'd be great. She's incredible. And she does really interesting heritage sort of pictures. And I think she would be able to put a spin on Bond that would look... She has quite a stately, classic kind of look to her films. Um, Belle is Mm. the main one I'm thinking of. Yeah. So I think she'd be able to get the look across, but I think she can also get in... She can she can slide in a lot of subversion into your regular sandwich, you know. Mm. You can have that one for free, Babs. <laughs> yeah, uh, although based on the names that are being floated as who they're actually looking at at the moment, it looks like they're they're currently circling Edgar Wright, which <laughs> sounds uh, <laughs> like they're really going very very far in the direction oh. of uh, trying to pick someone with a distinctive style. And who maybe will do something that's quite different from, again, the Mendy's kind of more sedate approach. Although, like, if they're trying to get it released by next year, I feel like that he'd be the wrong choice just because his movies are always so kind of meticulously planned and, like, every shot has to have weight and impact. So it kind of feels like hiring him to do it would maybe not be the best choice. Unless they delay it, which it looks like they probably will have to do if they hire someone who isn't just a journeyman oh why don't we just all go and watch baby driver again i'd yeah, rather do that personally do and before we go on to the main topic and this actually ties into the main topic a little bit you know there was a, a an op-ed in the new york times this week from kelly marie tran who people probably know uh was the uh, plays the character of rose Tycho in the star wars movies she was introduced in the last jedi and left Instagram and, you know, all social media a couple of months ago because of the reams of racist and sexist hate that she received from uh, the very worst people online, it seems. And she has more been fairly quiet since then, presumably because she didn't want to get even more abuse, which is understandable. And she came forward with this op-ed talking about her experience of all the abuse she had and how it kind of took her back to her childhood being Vietnamese-American and being forced to, in some ways, deny aspects of herself, you know, like not speaking Vietnamese so she wouldn't be made fun of or people assuming she was a foreign exchange student when she was out on a date with her boyfriend, you know, when she was 17 and using a different name, like not using her birth name, which I believe is is Loan instead going by Kelly because it's an American name and, and talking about being marginalised throughout her life. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you and I both said we just wanted to voice our support for Kelly Marie Tran, who I think is great in The Last Jedi and is seems like a lovely, bubbly person and yeah. who really enjoyed being in a Star Wars movie and getting to go out there and meet fans and things like that. And I, uh, the, the, the abuse that she has suffered has been truly awful and reprehensible and uh, i'm i'm so glad that she is speaking out there and as she said uh, she's just getting started i can't wait to see what she does next and it Mm. is just horrific everything that she's been through that she didn't owe anyone that op-ed but she did it for herself and she did it for everyone else who's been through what she's been through so i think it's really really courageous of her and i remember her instagram it made my day she was just so sunny and positive and for anyone to think they have the right to say anything like that to another human being absolutely astounds me. Hmm. Yeah. Support Kelly Marie Tran. She seems like a truly wonderful person. We love um, you. We love you, Kelly. 
Uh, so our main topic this week, and again, it kind of ties into the Kelly and Marie Tran thing, and I'm sure we'll discuss it in, in a little bit, is how audiences affect art. And this was inspired by uh, my recent viewing of the movie Black Klansman, the new Spike Lee movie, which has got everyone talking. And uh, I, I think deservedly so, not necessarily because it's a great movie, although I think there are great parts in it, but just because like a lot of Spike Lee's movie, it's very messy and the messiness of it you know kind of lends itself to you know discussion and dissection and very different interpretations of it particularly within the black critical community i think there's lots of people who uh take issue with its largely positive depiction of the police which feels out of step with um reality but the thing about it that really struck me is there is a scene in the movie in which the character of Ron Stallworth is taken aside by his commanding officer who kind of like has a conversation with him which is clearly just included to air some talking points that Spike Lee wants the audience to consider where he's talking to him about David Duke who at the time in the 1970s was the Grand Wizard of the KKK and was trying to kind of like normalize white supremacy uh, in a major way and you know there's the moment where the commanding officer says to Ron you know he's trying to get get politicians elected to share his views like one day someone who shares his views could even become president you know and it doesn't quite emphasize it the way that I just did but the implications are pretty clear of what Spike Lee is saying (laughs) about the current administration and its connection to what David Duke was doing in the 70s and what struck me as I was watching it was during that moment there was a lot of knowing laughter from the audience and I I think for me that kind of reaction made the moment way worse than it actually was like it felt to me like it was really over egging it in a way that maybe Spike Lee wasn't intending and and so it just got me thinking about the ways in which the people we see movies with have a outsized and often underrated effect on how we actually experience the art because unless we're watching a movie in a sensory deprivation chamber you know there's always going to be some slight uh, influence coming in from the sides you know from the other people you're sharing the space with yes when you told me about this i was not surprised in the slightest because something that i've noticed it immediately made me think of christmas back in i want to say 2004 Mm -hmm. my dad and stepmom went on a run of just wanting to have christmas in different places in america and we okay. ended up in uh, South Beach, Miami. Mm-hmm. And something that is so culturally different here to the US, you know, everything's pretty much shut on Christmas Day. But cinemas are not in the US. Mm. And this was such a novelty. We were like, oh, let's go to the cinema. And ended up going to see Sideways, which had just come out. And it fast became one of my dad and I's like favourite family films between us. Mm-hmm. Which I think tells you... A fair bit about our family <laughs> and the thing that struck me was that it wasn't a packed out screening it was quite healthy um but what really struck me was i realized oh i am in an audience with a quite vocally responsive black woman mm-hmm. which growing up in the deep south of england did not happen very <laughs> often 
And it was incredible. Everything that happened, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, that's going <laughs> to... And it, I loved it. I don't know whether how anyone else felt. It didn't annoy me in the slightest because she was just relishing this experience of watching this yeah. film about these two stupid white guys, middle-aged white guys, and just kind of clicking her tongue and being like, well, you know, it's going to come back to get you. And it did. And it was great. And that made me realise how different audiences are. It's something that I've mentioned before. I love whenever I go to something, looking around and seeing who else is there. Like, I'm drawn to this. You're drawn to this. We're so different. Why is that? Mm. And and then I realised I have so many of these little moments where the audiences have really it's been the whole experience rather than solely just the film. Yeah. And, you know, there are some films that I will, as much as I love seeing them, will never watch again because the actual experience was so perfect that it would feel like it would be chipping away at something to watch it at home. One that I think of <laughs> quite a lot was going to see the incredible Martha Marcy May Marlene by mm -hmm. Sean Durkin at the showroom. In, I want to yeah. say, I think it was screen one, like really teeny. Sorry for everyone who hasn't been to the showroom in Sheffield because Ed and I know it intimately. Yeah, yeah this is a very, very <laughs> specific local reference. <laughs> so niche. But it is a, a really small cinema uh, screen, screen one. And went to see Martha Marcy May Marlene. I think it must have been the penultimate screening of the day. And I noticed during the ads and trailers... There are two guys sitting quite near the front and they, within the ads, which is about 20 minutes, managed to get up and go to the bar twice. And I thought, mm -hmm. ooh, 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 we're in for a wild one, aren't we, boys? And they kept kind of going back and forth to the bar, but they were fine. They were just sort of keeping relatively quiet. And then in one particularly mellow beat where Elizabeth Olsen is stretching on her bed, just kind of a supine kind of repose, and it's quite clear that she's not wearing a bra. Mm. And one of these guys forgot where he was, I think. <laughs> and the link between his brain and his mouth, as we all want to do sometimes, and just said, in complete awe, she's got great tits. <laughs> and there was this slight smattering of giggles and like suppressed to laugh, because the thing was, everyone in the audience agreed. <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't a, a point of dissent we were all and we came together as one in mm -hmm. that moment Ed. and that again was actually kind of a relief in a film that is incredibly tense and also about sexual objectification to actually have just a guy appreciating elizabeth olsen's uh yeah front front package that's not that's not a good term for boobs. I've got so many. Why was that the one that I settled on just there? Sorry, I'm I'm quite tired. <laughs> uh, the, that um, reminded me also in terms of um, vocal audience members and um, for a film that I probably won't ever watch again. Not not because it's a particularly taxing experience, just because it's not that good. But when I went to see Love Actually in the cinema way back in Christmas of two thousand and three, yeah, there was a uh, a group of kind of, I would say, older ladies sat kind of like near where me and my family were. And one of them kind of was whispering to the other throughout the, the movie. Um, but there was one moment where she was kind of very vocal, which was when Laura Linney's character has gone 
home with the kind of like hunky man she works with who is kind of like her love interest in the movie and then as they are you know kind of like getting undressed she gets a phone call from her mentally ill brother i yeah. believe like a, a, <laughs> like i'm just thinking about it now that movie has some odd tangents she like goes to answer the phone because it's her brother and you know she's kind of the primary carer for her brother and everything and as she goes to pick it up the woman said like <laughs> the woman said i'd hang up <laughs> <laughs> Very, very, very clearly, and got a big laugh from uh, pretty much everyone in our section. And uh, I have a very, very, very clear memory of um, that moment. And also, more recently, in terms of uh, American audiences in particular, who are a lot more, in my experience, a lot more demonstrative than British audiences, during the trailer for The Girl Who Got Caught in the Spider's Web, I think is the one that's coming out. The, the new one with Claire Foy, there's a, a moment where she tasers the uh, balls of a man that she has kind of like, you know, broken into the house on of his trust up. And there was a woman like sat a little bit in front of me. You just started clapping. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, my favorite moment of my trip to see whatever movie. I, I've honestly forgotten what movie it was I went to see. I just remember, remember her doing that and thinking, yeah, go on. I that's, think that's that's the experience you want. What film did you see? Can't remember, but hey, saw a yeah. woman clapping, testicular torture. Actually, kind of along the lines of Love Actually and mm-hmm. uh, ladies being more vocal in their desire. A, a, a little while ago in my hometown of Glasgow, there was quite a notorious Valentine's Day screening of Fifty Shades Freed, I want to say. Mm-hmm. definitely one of one in one in that franchise and there is a cinema called the grosvenor uh which is a very old cinema and they were screening it uh the screens i think seat maybe around 300 people tops like not not huge not not tiny and i believe there was a group of ladies in attendance uh mm-hmm. who would had been drinking all day and i think started shouting at the screen throwing things at the screen (laughs) and then when told that uh please could they leave because they were disturbing the other patrons i think one of them just uh just just pissed herself in the aisle (laughs) i'm realizing how many of these stories i know are generally people who are quite drunk um Mm -hmm. but that's the british way yeah totally but that was Uh... definitely quite the effect Mm. I'm sure Christian Grey would have approved. It certainly seems that like a lot of these stories are are definitely tied to genres that demand kind of like a a significant uh, physical response from the audience, like you know comedy. Uh, I guess softcore. I guess is probably the the yeah. genre that Fifty Shades is kind of aiming at, or or kind of romance maybe, but not really horror as well. I think those are definitely the ones when I think of instances where the audience really reacted in a major way and that that imprinted on me as kind of like a primary reference uh, memory of those movies like those are the genres that i tend to, to gravitate towards occasionally you'll get like a, a moment in like an art house movie when someone will react with you know certainly uh my experience at the showroom someone was saying like this is shit you know, <laughs> gotta love, that, gotta that love you, the yorkshire you'll... critics association <laughs> 
<laughs> like you'd occasionally get that but um like for the most part i feel like the movies where a reaction of a kind of like a real pointed specific one of laughter or fear or desire definitely seem to be the ones that get the the, the most response from an audience and therefore i think can create the most fun communal experience as well because those are the things that are unexpected and separate from the movie that can really make a viewing completely on the subject of art house and thinking back to your experience with black clansmen my experience of that was i snapped myself up a student bafta scotland membership a while back and they put on screenings of of new you know releases before they're released which was a very nice uh, perk to the membership mm. and i saw high rise by ben wheatley oh yeah so we're in this bafta scotland screening and as everything is starting to fall apart in the in this adaptation there is a point where a couple of the um television presenters who i want to say one of them's played by rufus oh why is it escape me but they're all quite uniform in, in terms of their uh, hair and, and facial hair. But mm-hmm. these presenters and actors kind of run through the supermarket, looting with everyone. And uh, one of them's just bought his BAFTA along with him, his <laughs> actual award. And there's this moment where I think Tom Hiddleston sort of looks at him, BAFTA, there's this awkward kind of glance of like, well, yeah, obviously I'm, I'm keeping this with me. <laughs> and there was this wonderful moment of everyone finding it funny and then realising who they were and what we were doing. Just, you know, that real, ah, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And that uh, the... felt, uh, obviously Ben Wheatley knew that it would probably be screened at BAFTA at some point, but I wonder exactly mm. what he was trying to say to the Academy in that moment, if it was even that conscious. It was very funny. Yeah, weirdly on another Ben Wheatley connection, I went to a special screening of Kill List uh, just before that came out and that was shot in Sheffield and I saw it at the showroom and there is a moment when in one of the numerous montages of the characters driving around various locations in Sheffield they drive past the front of the showroom (laughs) Uh, and there was a very there was a shudder of kind of like eerie recognition throughout the entire audience everyone being like this is a little weird (laughs) We could have driven past just now. That's where we are. We, I had that when I first moved up to Edinburgh and I was working at the film house, I Mm. took myself to see Sunshine on Leith, the Proclaimers musical, which is charming Mm. as anything um, and features Jane Horrocks, which is always a a good thing in my book. But towards the end, there's there, there is the, instead of the, you know, running to the airport, there's the running to the train station to intercept and, and declare love. And the the leading lady, to get from Leith to Edinburgh Waverley Station, not that difficult. Yes, it's up a hill, but she's got luggage on a little rolly, rolly case. There's so many buses, like so many buses. <laughs> but then what she ends up doing is, I don't know whether she wants to take the scenic route, but she ends up sort of towards the mound, uh, which is the other way from so she'd have had to pass away but anyway we're all we're all sitting sitting here in in this cinema in edinburgh and as this musical montage keeps going on and she keeps popping up in ridiculous places in edinburgh everyone's kind of giggling level was starting to rise and rise um (laughs) so yeah it kind of uh 
snapped some of the disbelief suspension for us, unfortunately. Mm, yeah, that that reminds me of the best joke or one of the best jokes in the first Paddington movie, which is when Paddington first arrives in London and he meets the Browns and they're getting a cab ride back home and they just drive past like all of the big London mon- uh, landmarks. And as they get out, um, Hugh Bonneville says, "There's a bit of a circuitous route home, wasn't it?" And like the cab driver, say playing Matt Lucas, says, "Well, he's no, I thought he wanted to see the town, you know." Uh, which I was a, <laughs> I thought was a really funny joke about the fact that no movie seems to understand how London is laid out, <laughs> except, funnily enough, for Mission Impossible Fallout, which uh, oh. has a sequence in it where Tom Cruise uh, is chasing after Henry Cavill. Uh, which involves him running through St. Paul's Cathedral and then over a load of rooftops. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, and it ends at the Tate. And as I was watching it, thinking, this, you know, geographically all checks out. (laughs) This is a, a, this is a route you could totally do, but don't. Because everyone who tried it would would die. But it's a route that anyone who doesn't value their own life could probably, could probably make work. Just like the operating Thetan himself. He does all his own stunts. <laughs> that was the one that busted his ankle. So, yeah, yeah. So, in terms of like specific genres, again, um, I was thinking about horror in particular. Like a lot of my very distinct memories of everyone in an audience really responding to a movie in a certain way are kind of horror. And you know, most recently, I think of something like A Quiet Place, which is not a movie I love particularly, but it was very interesting watching a horror movie where the response for the most part from everyone was deftly silence and where everyone seemed very put out when anyone would like rustle their popcorn or anything like that, you know, like, cause every sound felt really magnified. And so when something scary happened also everyone's screams of terror were even more pronounced than in something like, um, like it, which is a movie that I enjoy a fair bit, but it's Mm. like, constant jump scares for two hours or so so it it kind of feels a little less special because it's kind of just saying okay i figured out this one trick to scare the audience i'm going to do it a hundred times that communal feel is really interesting particularly when you're watching something that not necessarily genre wise but at least in terms of themes or or subject really affects that community Hmm. i saw train spotting two last year on a Saturday afternoon at the Glasgow Film Theatre in Glasgow and I've never seen it more packed. It was incredible. Mm. It was just full of people mainly in their kind of late 30s, early 40s. So I guess the generation that watched the first one and saw themselves being captured in, in some way or another. And the atmosphere was incredible. Like everyone was behaving themselves and speaking at like a quiet level but even but because everyone was talking to each other the energy in that room was incredible and then we get to watch the film and you know there's roaring laughter and the part of train spotting 2 that i do really really like because i and i feel like it almost should have been just its own sketch or or short or whatever because it really didn't need the rest of it around it but uh sick boy and renton need to get cash quickly and they go on this harebrained scheme that only becomes revealed to you as it happens and they drive through from edinburgh to glasgow or somewhere 
just on the outskirts of Glasgow to an orange lodge. Mm. And they're <laughs> trying to sneak in and get all of the credit cards, but someone spots them. It's like, you've not, you're not from around here. We've not seen you before. And Renton and Sick Boy have to improvise a sectarian song <laughs> to prove that they are who they say they are. Yeah. And it is, it's not a, it's an instant hit, even though it has none of the anachronisms of the uh, the Orange Order. They manage to get the credit cards, go into the centre of Glasgow. And uh, it's weird because, again, it's the very cash point that I use quite a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, they max out all of the all of the credit cards um, because everyone has the same pin number because it's the year of the Battle of the Boyne. <laughs> and that, honestly, as you realise what they're doing and it's shown and they have to wait until midnight and then they can just keep kind of withdrawing cash again. The roar of recognition and laughter mm. in that cinema was really blew my mind because I thought there will be probably, because this is the way that you, you generally sort of divide the lines of sectarianism in Glasgow, there will be Rangers fans here, there will be Celtic fans here, there'll even be bloody Partick Thistle fans in here, God bless them. And everyone is laughing at this moment. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like conflict, weirdly, mm. even though it does depict the Orange Order in an immensely negative light. And that really struck me. Yeah, I, I kind of had something akin to that watching the Florida Project last year, which I saw at uh, the Enzian in Orlando, which is a kind of a, a very nice little art house theatre, kind kind of similar to the the showroom i would say in terms of in terms of like the clientele it's very kind of like student and older people yeah. <laughs> focused the two pillars of any art house cinema <laughs> and i had to go i had to go and see it try and see it twice the first time i just rolled up and thought oh, i'll be able to buy a ticket and there was a the standby queue was like 30 people deep I thought, okay yeah like i doubt there's gonna be 31 people who forget to show up for this movie so uh, i left and then i went online and booked a ticket for like later in the week and thought okay there's a screening where there's a ticket free like they, they pretty much just sold out every screening of that for the entire month that they were showing it and watching it even though the movie is not set in Orlando it's set I think in Kissimmee which is nearby but it's got a lot of places that are very recognizable to anyone who's lived in the Orlando area for any period of time and there was like a real feeling of recognition of seeing a side of or seeing a place that you know very well depicted you know pretty accurately like in terms of like there are there are parts of Central Florida that are just so devastated by the the housing crash and that are still, you know, just like acres of empty houses. You have, you know, lots of people living in abject poverty and, you know, the homelessness is a real, really bad problem in, in pretty much every major American city, but in, in Orlando has it pretty bad. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't <laughs> as fun as the Train Spotting 2 example sounds, but there was certainly this kind of very strong ripple of recognition throughout the audience of everyone being like, oh, yeah, this this is, you know, close to home in the most literal sense. I fucking adore the Florida Project. It's just such an yeah, incredible it's a great movie. It must have been amazing. You know what? I, I can't believe that we've gone this long in chatting about this topic and we haven't spoken about how the great Matt Risby and I first came to be in the same place and time, which is the screening of The Room. 
at mm. uh, the Manton Theatre in Sheffield, where Matt read out his personal correspondence with Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> and I think it's interesting how these kind of... Like, we talk about cult films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, Sound of Music, of all things, the most mainstream cult film ever, yeah, and The Room, and how audiences really have given those films life for a long time mm. similarly with Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2 where it turns into more of a cabaret or to have yeah. these kind of in jokes to do these really like ritualistic things like everyone knows what's going to happen when you see the spoon <laughs> the spoon <laughs> oh sorry I, I nearly got it out there uh the spoons in the frame uh everyone's mm. gonna chuck spoons at the room shut the damn door and he, you know, everyone chiming in. <laughs> everyone knows what's going to happen. There's no surprises. But that is the joy of it. It's everyone coming together and creating this, bringing the film out into the world even more in this space. Mm. And that was the first time that my mum had actually ever seen The Room. Oh, right. So I ended up kind of doing this weird little commentary where I was trying to explain everything that's going on in the room we were in and the room. And the relationship between the two. Um, and she said, oh, I had no idea what was going on, but it was wonderful. <laughs> and it was, it really was. Like everyone came out exhilarated like you would from it, it sort of turning film into cabaret in that kind of, there's, there's much more audience participation. And even though you don't, obviously you can't actually, the film can't interact with, with you, you absolutely give it space in terms of your interaction with the film. And I think we are missing those kinds of experiences more and more. Like I'm, I'm really from from my time at seeing shows at the Fringe this year, I'm bowled over by how um, reverent we we are, and that we go into these strange spaces with strangers and listen to someone or watch someone or it's a play or it you know all sorts of things. I went to Kylie Cabaret last night and. It was phenomenal. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes you're, you're sitting there listening to the the gospel of Kylie, but it does feel quite religious, or or I would say it's about the human connection that runs under religion as well. It's the idea of coming together and being in a space and and performing these kinds of rituals that that keep us in touch with being alive and and what that means and and to be with each other. And I can't believe I've quite got here. From Tommy Wiseau to <laughs> the quasi-spiritual <laughs> cinema-going experience. But hey, you know, hit between him and Neil Breen, there's a second coming <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Neil Breen, who I think did the... Uh, he did the Thanos killing half the world thing better. <laughs> oh, yeah, by far. Breen did it first. Breen did it first. Breen did it better. The other thing that... I, I guess the thing is we've, we've spoken mainly... And we were sharing about this off mic in terms of so many of our experiences are enhancing and positive ones with audiences. But particularly at the Fringe this year, I've been staggered by how badly some audiences have behaved. It's mm. like, do you even show, bro? Like, do you not understand I've paid to come and see the person on stage, not you? And I've seen, it's kind of incredible though, because you get to experience what comics have to deal with and what how they handle it. And it's funny because I think, you know, they were dealing with trolls well before we all got online. Yeah. And often it's you you give someone a warning, you give them the benefit of the doubt. 
you reiterate that warning and then you chuck them off. Are you listening, Jack? <laughs> yeah, Twitter. That's a. Oh, so yeah, heckling is the um, proto Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I've been absolutely staggered by how poorly some audiences have been and just how it's just so rude. It's so rude, but sometimes it can actually be dangerous. And this is looping back to our support for the wonderful Helen Marie Tram. Mm. Audiences can give films life and, and there's something so wonderfully wacky and, and lovely about that positivity. But people can also kill films stone dead or make people feel unsafe, which is just bizarre. In terms of, you know, the idea of toxic fandom, which is something that gets discussed on this show fairly often because it's a consistent problem and <laughs> people being just incredibly awful to the creators of the thing they like, which is um disturbing mindset to constantly be uh exposed to. And, you know, I, I, I often say this, but, you know, I have to reiterate, I cannot uh, fathom the patience and strength of character that someone like Orion Johnson has yeah. of being constantly on Twitter because he enjoys the interactions with people and he enjoys, you know, clearly enjoys, you know, being able to go out there and, and you kind of like tweet about movies he's watching and have people respond and say, oh yeah, that's really great or tell stories and, and learn things. But every time he tweets one thing being like, you ruined Star Wars and like you being like screamed at by by losers online. It kind of feels. Uh, I, I'm. I'm very, I've always been impressed with him as a filmmaker, but the last like uh, nine months or so, like, <laughs> makes me really impressed with him, just as a person who's able to exist in the world, considering the amount of shit he gets. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about how not only does the, the the idea of toxic fandom, I think, affect how you watch the movies as they come out. Certainly, in the case of Star Wars, like, I feel like when I watch episode nine, I'll probably be watching it in a very different headspace to how I watched the last Jedi or the force awakens, both of which were more kind of tinged, not just tinged, you know, overwhelmed with excitement to see what these new star Wars movies are going to be like and coming away pretty happy with them, to be honest. You know, I I liked the force awakens and I loved the last Jedi, but like the next one, like, it's going to be hard to watch it, at least on first viewing, it's going to be hard to watch it without thinking like, oh, did they do this thing to appease the people who are sending them abuse online? Did they do this to piss them off? You know, it's going to be that, that is going to be a constant concern. The first time I watch episode nine, I feel it's going to be very hard to, and because, because that was kind of how I felt watching solo as well. Like watching that and thinking, uh, what, what are the, what are the nerds thinking about this? But in a in a broader sense, it also means that like now it kind of feels like there are certain pop culture properties that you basically don't admit to liking because the people who like them are, tr- are terrible people. Yeah, like like the, the the two big ones in recent years being like Breaking Bad, which morphed from a show that was kind of a cool thing that a few people liked to like one of the biggest shows on television and everyone seemed to liked it seemed to be just an absolute dick uh and rick and morty is like obviously like a big one like a show that i think is incredibly funny and smart and i would say you know has a genuine kind of like empathy and has 
is clearly like written from the perspective of people who think that the character of Rick is an awful human being who shouldn't be emulated, who is liked primarily by people who think that he's a badass who everyone should try and be like. Uh, and so at this point, it's like, even though uh, I enjoy that show a great deal, I am always very loath to bring up the fact that I like it. <laughs> same. And you know what? Speaking as a woman, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same. It's really hard to say that, you know, you like, I mean, on the grand scheme of things, not really, really hard. But yes, there is there is that sort of social embarrassment and shame being like, well, I actually quite like Rick and Morty. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Ed. It's that these terrible fanboys recognise themselves in these characters like particularly jesse pinkman i think in in breaking bad but then they just ignore Mm. the criticism or the deeper analysis of their characters and how they change and they just want to remain recognized and therefore somehow verified and validated and vindicated oh lots of these there Mm. and yeah i i mean that's not gonna go away So I think what we need to do as audiences is create better, more positive realms of fandom and experiences for each other. And I think that stretches into making going to the cinema a much more accessible experience in terms of disability and money as well, because it's getting more and more Mm. expensive to go. So we all want to have a nice time because I was talking about this with a friend of mine earlier today and he has severe hearing loss. And he says, but I also just don't like people being dicks in the cinema. And if you go to the cinema, you pay what? Upwards, even sometimes 15, 18 pounds Mm. to sit somewhere that's probably falling apart. Someone on their phone next to you. We need to we need to look after each other. (laughs) Better together. That's the message for cinema in 20, 2018. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That's certainly one of the things that makes me, keeps me from going to the cinema as much as it. Well, the, the main thing is that when I went to the cinema a lot, it was when I worked at the cinema and didn't have to pay. So that was a big, uh, big contributing factor to the fact that I saw like, I don't know, like 200 movies in the cinema a year in 2008 9 10 and 11 because it was like oh right i just can pick up a comp from the box office and go and watch all the movies uh uh, and you know then i can just save my money and spend it on food and booze this is a very telling indication of what my life was like in my early 20s for anyone who was wondering um but you know a large part is like the the audience experience the feeling that you're spending a lot of money and you're going to have a bad time which i think is why movie pass before it imploded spectacularly really caught on over here because like there was that idea that it kind of didn't matter how your experience was because if you were seeing 10 i think it worked out if you saw like 10 movies a month like your ticket was like three dollars a movie and so like it's like fine i'll pay that (laughs) i'll pay that if um if that's the experience that I'm going to get. And I think that that is, again, like telling about the fact that the experience doesn't really seem worth what you pay for it. But you know what? I, I think I'd just like to finish by talking about the experience that really heartened me, which was when I went mm. to go and see Black Panther. Mm. And I have, it was in a, one of the huge screens in the Cineworld in Glasgow. 
in the centre of Glasgow and I have never seen that many young black people in the cinema. We were just yeah. absolutely wrapped. And I just thought, yes, this is a good thing. This is hopefully something getting better. Mm, yeah, my my screening of Black Panther was pretty similar, although Florida is a fairly diverse state, so like I often see, you know, fairly diverse audiences when I go to see movies, but that one definitely felt like, oh, this is a moment for a lot of people who aren't used to seeing themselves depicted in this kind of movie or if you're in this kind of movie you are captain america's sidekick mm. you know you're not the star but also the entire cast and you know that was that definitely felt special and you could see why that was a reason for people to rush out to the cinema in huge numbers and watch the movie and we end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Rachel Fairburn and her show The Wolf at the Door, which mm. I saw last night. So hot off the press, guys. I really hope she tours it. I have a, I really hope she does, and I have a suspicion that she, that she will. For anyone who's not aware of Rachel Fairburn. She is a stand-up and she is also one half of the excellent podcast All Killer No Filler, where she joins fellow stand-up Kiri Pritchard McLean and they discuss their love of all things serial killers, but as long as they're doing this podcast, they are not writing to them at prison, in at least. So I became aware of both of them mainly sort of through this podcast, but I've been following their comedy as well, um, off the back of that. And Rachel's show is just it's I'm still thinking about it. It 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 it's not one that kind of immediately gets you, although there are some moments in it that are like incredibly powerful and really, really upsetting. And it's just incredibly intimate and vulnerable, but really conversational. You feel like she sat down and, and you're catching up and you haven't seen each other in months. And she just tells you this story of a, of a time that was not very good for her. And uh, I think it's I think it's a really brave and insightful piece of work. So I really hope she tours it and I really hope you all get a chance to see it. Rachel Fairburn, The Wolf at the Door. Fantastic. I'm going to recommend a, a, a movie that came out earlier this year. As I said this week, I kind of spent a little bit of time catching up on movies that I missed early this year and this was a movie that I missed because uh, I thought the trailer looked dreadful and then I just never got around to watching it even after everyone said actually the trailer the movie is, is good and that is Kay Cannon's Blockers which is a sex comedy about three teenage girls who all pledge to lose their virginity on prom night and their three parents played by uh, Leslie Mann, John Cena and Ike Barinholtz trying to stop them. Although, actually, Ike Barinholtz isn't trying to stop his daughter from having sex. He's actually very encouraging of it and thinks it's a good thing and a rite of passage. He's mainly there because he's lonely and wants to hang out with the other two, which oh, is an element that was left out from the trailer and probably would have made me watch it because that's a more interesting dynamic than just what they put in, which was him being annoying. Uh, Lonesome, that... sex-positive Ike Barinholtz. I'm there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other things about the trailer that really put me off was it made it seem like it was just going to be from the perspective of the parents, which made it seem quite regressive when, in fact, the focus is more or less evenly distributed between the, the, the two groups and 
the actresses, the younger actresses playing the daughters are all great, uh, particularly Geraldine Vishwanathan, who plays John Cena's daughter. She is uh, incredibly funny and really, really charming. And uh, I really also really liked uh, Gideon Adlon, who is the daughter of Pamela Adlon, frequent um, voiceover ah. artist, voice voice of Bobby Hill, most famously who looks exactly like her mum, <laughs> which I found really funny just because I went in thinking, I heard that Pamela Adlon's daughter's in this. I wonder which one. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I can see which one is her daughter. But yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a really funny sex positive movie. It has a lot of really just kind of really great, charming performances from everyone involved. There's a couple of cameos by very funny comedy people who I, I won't spoil because their appearance is... Uh, incredibly funny and uh, unexpectedly weird and yeah i just found it to be really funny and sweet and charming and way better than the trailer suggested so go watch it it's really cool thank you emily again for being on the show have you got anything to plug this week no no not okay. for me i'm i'm just i'm just kicking back but it's so lovely to be here and chat with you ed thank you very much if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.